0: the revolution is not being televised but it is being digitized right here on digital village
1: on 90.7 fm kpfk i'm rick allen and i'm Brittany gallagher In this episode, Leilani Albano is joined by journalist and author of Spillover, David Quammen, about how humans have played a role in the spread of the novel coronavirus. And in the later part of the show, Dr. Addison Colleen Stark is back to tell us about the American Energy Innovation Council's latest report on supporting the energy innovation lifecycle.
2: Innovation doesn't end at the lab's edge, but requires scaling up to the size of the industry and also de-risking these technologies so the commercial and private sector can take these technologies and deploy them at the scale, the rate we need to deploy them to be able to hit our mid-century decarbonization goals.
3: More with
1: Dr. Addison Colleen Stark in a bit. But first, Roy Natian of Nothing is Secure is here to help us secure our phone and devices, not from virtual viruses, from biological ones like the novel coronavirus, listen to this. To help prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus, we've been hearing a lot, of course, about washing our hands and not touching our face. But one of the things I found challenging is my devices and my phone in particular. One of the things I've ended up doing is if I have to go out, I just don't take my phone out. From when I leave the house until I get back and wash my hands, I don't look at my phone. But there has to be another way. Roy, what's some advice on keeping your phone clean? Or do we even need to do that?
4: Oh yeah, we definitely need to do that. So washing our hands regularly and not touching our face are uh, two of the best things you can do to minimize the chances of having uh, the coronavirus enter your body. But this won't help much with frequently handled items in your home, like your cell phone. They're not cleaned as well. So just like how nothing is secure with your computers and online, uh, your health and safety not a certainty. But we do our best to maximize the chances of the best results. And fortunately, there are things we can do that are very effective at protecting our health. So one of those things is cleaning your phone and cleaning it regularly. We handle our phones so much that they are a major accumulator of bacteria and viruses. So even if you go ahead and wash your hands often, if you go back and touch your phone, you've pretty much undone washing your hands. Cleaning your phone is really important
1: okay so i have to clean my phone what supplies do i need to do that
4: so there there are a few things to keep in mind first of all you actually have for, for many people there are actually two things to clean it's your phone and your phone case so This whole process applies both to your phone and your phone case. And there are a few things you need before you begin cleaning your phone. So you need some sort of cleaning cloth, ideally like a microfiber cloth or a lens cleaning cloth so that it's not abrasive, but do the best you can. If you don't have any of those, use some sort of soft cotton cloth. Paper towels are not ideal, but if that's all you have, use paper towels. So do the best you can do. And then you need some sort of cleaning solution. Now, if you have a phone that's already dirty, like there's visible dirt on it, some sort of dried crud, you'll need some soapy water. And then once your phone is visibly clean, uh, what you'll need is either 70% alcohol or some of those Clorox or Lysol wipes. Don't use anything super harsh like bleach that can damage your phone and the coatings that are on your phone screen. And then ideally, you'll also wear some sort of disposable glove so that you can touch everything safely and then dispose the gloves afterwards. In fact, it's just a general thing. Wear gloves as you clean things so that you can minimize uh, your bare skin touching surfaces.
1: Or just wash your hands right afterwards. That's what, well, what i well, yeah, yeah.
4: Uh, Definitely. So <laughs> we're living in a strange time and these these sorts of new habits we need to develop, we're not used to them. So yes, washing your hands after you clean things is also something you should do.
1: Let's walk through the process. I have an iPhone. What do I do?
4: Yeah. So Just before we dive into that, these are just general guidelines. Your phone manufacturer website will have specific instructions for your phone. Many of them have updated their websites actually to include specific instructions on disinfecting your phone. So keep that in mind that these are just general guidelines and that you should follow the manufacturer's specific instructions.
1: To that point, earlier in February, I was on Apple's website trying to figure out how to best disinfect my MacBook and my phone, and they didn't have instructions. Basically, it was just wipe it down with a damp cloth. But now it seems like they've updated it with some recommendations, which I think you're about to give us.
4: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and Google also updated their website on, on their Pixel phone. So the manufacturers do have instructions online. Before you begin actually cleaning your phone, there are a few things you need to do. Turn off your phone, And unplug it from any cables, so any headphones or charging cables. And then make sure you don't use any harsh chemicals. So don't use bleach. And also don't use any sort of aerosol or spray cleaner because the pressure can... Force liquids into your phone, and you don't want that. And then also, don't dunk your phones in liquids. Specifically, don't dunk them inside any cleaning chemicals. I know a bunch of phones are waterproof these days, but not everyone. So, and you really don't need to do that anyway to clean your phone. So just don't. And then, as you clean your phone, uh, make sure you avoid getting any liquids into the gaps between the buttons, in the speakers, and also in the microphones. Uh, your cleaning cloths shouldn't be soaking wet, but they should be pretty moist. All right. So, the cleaning. First things first. Take your phone out of its case. And then clean your case, give it a good wipe down inside and out, and then set it aside.
1: What about different types of materials for cases? Do I use the same thing to clean it?
4: Dealing with tiny things like viruses is really unintuitive. One of the things you need to keep in mind is if any surface that's porous uh, has all these you know, tiny holes where bacteria and viruses can live. It's best not to have cases that are porous. So if you have a case that's textile based, if it's cloth, if it has a lot of grooves and rough surfaces, those probably aren't the best. I recommend getting uh, a plastic case or one of those silicone cases that aren't as porous or aren't porous at all and can actually be cleaned properly.
1: All right. Now we're cleaning the actual phone.
4: Yeah. So make sure there's no dried crud on it. Make sure it's visibly clean. So... Dip uh, your cleaning cloth in some mild soapy water and wipe your phone down until it's visibly clean. And then you can go ahead and get the the alcohol or the Clorox wipes and then wipe down your phone at all services. So wipe down the screen, of course, the back front, and then also um, gently clean the buttons if your phone has any buttons.
1: I've heard a lot about UV light as a way to disinfect things. What are your thoughts on that?
4: there is evidence that uv can kill the coronavirus and it does kill all sorts of viruses and bacteria the thing with that though is the uv light needs to reach all surfaces and if there's some sort of dirt already on your phone putting it inside the uv cleaning device won't necessarily disinfect any of the the bacteria underneath the dirt so you're probably gonna have to wipe down your phone anyway before you put it in the device and if you're going to be doing that then just clean it and use a clorox wipe those devices are great but they're really not necessary. Cleaning your phone with a, with a Clorox wipe or 70% alcohol is more than enough. It's super important to keep our hands clean and because we use our phones all the time, it's important that our phones be clean as well so that when we touch them, our hands also remain clean. Clean your phone, clean them regularly and uh, be safe out there.
1: That was Reynatian reminding us that we don't just need to wash our hands. We need to wash our devices as well. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. We've been covering the novel coronavirus a lot this past month on Digital Village. As the number of cases of COVID-19 worldwide has, as of the time of this recording, risen to over 766,000 and the number of deaths to over 36,000, it has been found that SARS-CoV-2 may have originated in animals and then transferred to humans, a process called zoonosis. Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano interviews David Quammen, a journalist and author of the book Spillover. And she begins by asking Mr. Quammen if humans are responsible for the current pandemic.
0: Yes, we have made this pandemic in two senses. First of all, we did not make the virus. The virus is a natural virus that has come from a wild animal, very likely a bat. But the event known as spillover is something that was caused by us in the sense that coming into contact with wild animals, capturing them, killing them, bringing them live to markets, gives them the opportunity to spill over their viruses into us, gives the viruses the opportunity to take hold in humans, replicate, and spread. That's not something that's just happening to us. That's the result of things that we humans are doing. And in another sense, we have made this pandemic happen because we were so poorly
3: prepared for it. You've made the connection between ecological damage and encroachment to what's happening. Tell us about that connection.
0: So we humans, we go into tropical forests. We go into other diverse ecosystems. We want the resources. We cut down the trees. We build timber camps. We build mining camps. There are workers there. The workers have to be fed. In many cases, probably in most cases, they're fed, at least in some parts of the world, they're fed with, with wild animals that are killed for them or by them to eat while they're living in those uh, forest timber camps. So we do those things and we expose ourselves to these viruses.
3: You have written a book about this, published in 2012. So you're not surprised by this at all.
0: No, I'm not surprised by this. It's a book about exactly this sort of thing. It's about animal infections spilling over into humans and becoming pandemics. When I was researching it 10 years ago, I was talking to some of the world's savviest scientists on this particular subject, and the composite of what they were telling me, and this is in the book, is that uh, will there be a next pandemic, a next big pandemic? Yes, there will be. What will it look like? Well, they were telling me it'll be caused by a virus, a virus coming out of wild animals spilling over into humans. What kind of wild animal? Well, it could very possibly be a bat. What kind of virus? Well, it could very possibly be a coronavirus, one of those viruses that evolves relatively quickly. All of that was in my book, not because I was prescient, but because I was listening carefully to these scientists. They were reading the signals. They were paying attention to the warnings. They knew the science, and that's what they were saying.
3: So tell us about the Wuhan wet markets and why China?
0: Well, there is a fashion in China for wild animal meat. So it is it is something more recent. It is a fashion. It is a vogue in China. So what do these wet markets look like? Well, periodically, when an event like this happens, the wet markets with all of these wild animals are sort of pushed underground. The Chinese government enacts regulations against them. The wild animals disappear, but they don't stop being sold entirely. It's just becomes sort of a black market trade. When the regulations are not enforced, then one of these wet markets will be a large open area with a roof over it in which all kinds of wild animals are on sale live as food. And that means reptiles, turtles, snakes, all kinds of wild birds, wild mammals like pangolins and bamboo rats and civet cats and bats. Yes, bats also. And these animals are alive, they're in cages, they're next to one another, sometimes they're stacked one on top of another, so that it's a very unhygienic situation, environment generally. And of course, this is not a problem unique to China. People eat wild animals in other parts of the world. I live in Montana. We eat wild animals here. Deer, elk, they don't happen to carry any viruses of the same danger as these so far as we know. But my point is that there's no moral absolute line. Oh, this is something those people do, we don't do. We all bear a certain responsibility for this, not just because of the things that we eat, but because of other things that we do that also bring us in contact with wild animals and diverse ecosystems and give the viruses and those animals an opportunity to spill over into humans.
3: And this process is what people call zoonosis?
0: That's right. Yeah. Zoonosis is an animal infection that's transmissible to humans. Might be a virus, might be a bacterium, might be an infectious fungus or another kind of microbe. And when that pathogen, that virus passes from its non-human host into its first human host, that's the event that we call spillover. That virus is a zoonosis because it comes from non-human animals and gets into humans. And then if it causes disease in humans, we call that a zoonotic disease.
3: But the animals aren't killing each other from the viruses, right? So these viruses are killing humans, but not other animals?
0: Right. Generally the case. When a virus of a particular sort has lived in a species of animal for a very, very long time, thousands of years, maybe longer than that, there is an accommodation that tends to be reached by evolution so that the virus is no longer making the animal, say it's a bat, sick. It's not killing bats. It might not be replicating into great abundance inside the bats. It might just be living there at sort of a low, quiet, survival level. And then if it passes from that host, that what they call its natural host or its reservoir host, the place where it lives inconspicuously over long periods of time without causing trouble, if it passes from that host into a new kind of host, say a human being, then maybe it's not going to be able to live there. Maybe it's not going to be able to replicate but if it happens that it can, then it replicates inside the human and it, and it has the opportunity to evolve further if it's one of those kinds of viruses that change a lot and they're capable of evolving. And if it evolves further in the human so that it can not only replicate in that first human but can pass from that human into another human, then it's on its way to becoming a pandemic human virus.
3: But there's always been this threat of, pathogens crossing from animals to humans, what's the difference now?
0: We seem to be seeing these things more frequently, and they are in some cases spreading around the planet more disastrously because things are different now from, say, in 1918 when the Spanish flu killed a lot of people around the world, or 14th century when bubonic plague killed a large proportion of the population of Europe. We are now much more abundant on this planet. There are 7.7 billion humans. We have needs and wants. We have great appetites for resources, not just for food, but resources of all kinds, minerals, timber, and water all over the world. So we are putting greater demands on the natural ecosystems of the world. And we are more connected, traveling around the planet, flying an airplane so that a virus gets in a human in Hong Kong, rides aboard a plane with that human, that virus can be in Toronto 15 or 18 hours later, can circle the world in 24 hours or so.
3: Some people believe that COVID-19 was created in a government lab. What are your right. thoughts on
0: that? Yeah, you hear that. You know, people love conspiracies, but there is scientific work that has been done on the genome of this particular virus by some very, very good evolutionary virologists, There's a paper in the journal Nature Medicine. The first author is Christian Anderson, Nature Medicine, just published in the last few weeks. They have looked very carefully at the genome of this new virus, sometimes called SARS-2 or SARS-CoV-2, a nearly exact match to the virus that had been previously found in bats in a cave in another province of China, Yunnan back three, four, five years ago. It didn't spill over accidentally from a laboratory and it wasn't released on purpose uh, as part of a bioweapons conspiracy.
3: From what you're saying about the coronavirus origins that is linked to ecological destruction, it seems like while these things are helpful, such as hand washing and social isolation to stop the virus from spreading, it isn't really addressing future Pandemics as it relates to ecological destruction. Is there anything long term that you'd like to see in terms of how we treat the environment?
0: Yes, that's important. Once we get control of this pandemic, once we get this fire put out, we need to start planning and preparing immediately for the next one because this is not a solitary event. Uh, This is part of a pattern. There will be more of these. And so we need to plan and we need to plan not just with science and technology and public health production of capacity. We need to change also our thinking about our interactions with the natural world. That's the hardest part.
3: When all of this is over, do you think that things will ever be normal again, or is that even the goal?
0: Oh, good question. Will things ever be normal, quote-unquote normal? I hope things will be different after this is over. I hope it will alert us both to patterns of consumption, our interactions with the natural world, our demands upon the natural world, our disruptions of the natural world. I hope that will be different, a new normal for that. So getting back to normal, I think, is not completely the goal. We want a new normal, where we can socialize with one another, where we can go to bars and restaurants, where our economies are thriving again. And yet we're a little bit more humble. We're a little bit more cognizant of how we disrupt the natural world. We're a little bit more prepared for the next one of these kinds of events. That's the new normal that I'm hoping for.
3: Well, thanks so much for joining the show.
0: You're very welcome, Leilani. Good to talk with you. And thanks for doing what you're doing.
1: That was Leilani Albano, joined by journalist and author of the book Spillover, David Quammen, talking about the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and how humans have contributed to the pandemic but also some things we can learn to help prevent the next one. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. In the last part of the show, I'm joined by Dr. Addison Colleen Stark of the Bipartisan Policy Center to talk about the American Energy Innovation Council's latest report on supporting the energy innovation lifecycle and how that can help combat climate change. Listen to this. Who and what is the American Energy Innovation Council?
2: The American Energy Innovation Council is a council that's run here at BPC that is 11 CEOs and and business leaders who have come together to push for an increased support at the federal level for energy innovation in the U.S. Their main focus is on three big issues. Number one, the U.S. is not currently leading in investments in energy R&D. As a matter of fact, we've fallen to number 14 in the world on terms of percentage of GDP invested. And that's not good for on terms of our international competitiveness in this space. Number two, these leaders recognize we don't have all the technologies we need to be able to decarbonize by mid-century. And number three, investments in this today build jobs in the U.S. and companies in the U.S. that will pay dividends in the future. The council has members, including Bill Gates, who is a founding member, and then also a number of today's leading CEOs of utilities, including Ben Folk of Excel Energy, one of the first utilities to make a net zero goal by 2050, along with Tom Fanning, the CEO of Southern Company, another utility to make aggressive decarbonization goals, along with other industrial players like Mike Graff from American Air Liquide. And they have a very broad vision of how hydrogen can play a role along with engaging in carbon capture and storage technology development, because industrial gases is going to play a big role in managing our CO2. All of these organizations along with many other CEOs, have come together to say that we need to triple our investment in energy innovation and broaden the DOE's mandate beyond just support for basic science to also include support for full-scale demonstration projects and policies to support the deployment of energy technologies and the new technologies we need.
1: In this report, you talk a lot about the full energy innovation lifecycle. What do you mean by that?
2: In the US, we've been a world leader at investing in basic science and to some degree, applied research. And we've looked at that as the place where the federal government needs to play a role because there are market failures that essentially industry and the private sector cannot invest that early because there's no direct returns from that. Essentially, there's a lot of externality and spillover effects that the federal government needs to play a role there. However, we've often left it to the private sector to commercialize technology and to be the ones that take the lead on the development of new products. Unfortunately, in a space like energy, it's very hard to see the companies play a role in that space because it's very hard to develop new technologies due to the fact that in the energy industry, it's highly capitalized. It's very expensive to bring a new technology to market. Also, the fact that you're then ultimately selling a commodity product electricity is a very low margin and it's highly regulated, or you're making some sort of a a fuel that needs to compete directly with petroleum derived product, which is very cheap. So what we're proposing and our corporate leaders have recognized is the fact that the federal government needs to play a bigger role beyond just basic science to include demonstration and deployment of these technologies. So recognizing there is a big challenge in how we support demonstration projects and we need to have the federal government take a bigger role in partnering with the private sector to be able to approve and de-risk these new technologies. And that's the big focus on the full innovation lifecycle is that innovation doesn't stop at the edge of the lab bench, that indeed we need to think about how you take things from the laboratory and scale it up all the way to the utility scale. And there's a lot of engineering and scientific challenges that need to be addressed along that pathway.
1: Right. So that I get. What about the greater good? What about government tax credits for this stuff? What if is is there a way to incentivize people to make this this worth it? Because sure, you're not going to make a bunch of money, but you're going to help save the planet. (laughs) Like that's kind of a big win, right?
2: That's absolutely right. So, and that's the argument that the AEIC is making is fundamentally, we've always seen the net benefit of the federal government investing in basic science because, you know, it does lead to the innovations and the technologies of tomorrow. And that's largely because of the spillover effects. However, we need to recognize that there are these big spillover effects of investing in demonstration and deployment of new energy technologies, because if Industry is unable to invest in them alone, then it is the role of the federal government to better support the innovation lifecycle to bring these new technologies to market. And that's exactly it, because the net benefit of the development of new decarbonization technologies will ultimately drive down the costs of achieving net zero emissions and thus decrease the overall cost of hitting climate goals. And so Investment and innovation today will pay dividends as we address climate change tomorrow.
1: In the report, the AEIC had nine recommendations to bolster federal support for energy innovation. Can you walk me through some of these things and what we should be doing and what we can do now?
2: Right. So in the report, exactly like you pointed out, there's nine key recommendations. I'm not going to go through them all with you. But what I can say largely is there's recommendations. But fundamentally, one of the biggest things that the Congress can do today is enact Tools for the Department of Energy to improve its commercialization activities, to improve the function of the Office of Technology Transitions, which is essentially the chief commercialization officer for DOE. So, the office that will help commercialize technologies, get it out of the labs and into companies. It can increase the funding of ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy, where I used to work, which is really focused on taking and commercializing technologies. And also, it can develop and improve essentially the lab-embedded entrepreneurship program or entrepreneurs and residents that go to the national labs and look at how they can take technology and spin it out and create new companies. These are three examples of ways that we can Both improve funding of innovation, but also the mechanisms that spin out these technologies. And what I'm really excited about is the fact that there are bipartisan bills that exist today to support and improve on all of these functions at the DOE. And in particular, there's bipartisan support in a new energy package put forth by the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee led by Senators Murkowski and Manchin that involve a lot of these recommendations. And we're excited to see these proposals move forward and really making a down payment on the innovation we need for tomorrow. We're excited to see that they're drawing from the American Energy Innovation Council's recommendations in what they're trying to do.
1: That was Dr. Addison Colleen Stark of the Bipartisan Policy Center to talk about the American Energy Innovation Council's latest report on supporting the energy innovation lifecycle and how that can help combat climate change. You can read the report on the Bipartisan Policy Center's website at bipartisanpolicy.org. We've covered how to clean your devices and their cases with Nothing Is Secure's Roy Notion, and Leilani Albano spoke with David Quammen about SARS-CoV-2 and the spillover effect, and hopefully some things we can learn from this pandemic that will help us for the next. We'll get through this. That's it for Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In A Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org. Click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can follow us on all things social using at digitalvradio or at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to Roy Natian, Leilani Albano, and Dr. Addison Colleen-Stark. KPFK is 100% listener-sponsored. You can donate now and keep glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio going at KPFK. Go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks
0: for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And we'll see you
2: online.